Thank you very much. And it is such an honor and privilege to be here whenever I come to Queens. And, uh, you know, as uh, pointed out, my in-laws are here. And uh, it's, uh, it's, this is, this is a, a home for me to be able to be here and uh, such a special opportunity. For those of you who are not keeping track, tonight is Gimel Kislev. And the significance is obvious to everyone. There are only 22 shopping days left to Hanukkah. <laughs> and it's not like by the Goyim. We have to buy eight gifts. And Baruch Hashem, some of those gifts are things like socks. You know what I mean? So it's not so bad. I mean, no one's getting the DVD player eight times. You know what I mean? We can give it a little, you know, you get a dreidel. Here you get a candy coin. Here you get a little something, you know. But it requires a tremendous amount of creativity, especially in these difficult economic times, to be able to come up with enough interesting gifts. And what do you get when people, you know, have everything? You know, my, uh, I met an old a fellow who grew up in Yerushalayim in the 50s, he says, Shabbos, we used to get a treat. My father would give everybody three shkede marak. That was our treat for Shabbos. And I give that to my children too. Then they take the bag and uh, finish it off. But, uh, you know, you know, today, Baruch Hashem, people, people have so much. It's so easy to get things. You know, my friend uh, Ami Cohen, um, his father of David Cohen, so, uh, you know, he says he's got everything. He's got every safer. What am I going to get him, you know? So he went down to the closet. It was his birthday or something. He went down to the closet, found an old safer that hadn't touched in years, wrapped it up and gave it to him again. Because <laughs> 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 he doesn't remember what he's got, you know? And David Cohen looks at him and he says, Oh, Baruch Hashem, I'm so glad I got this. He's not there, oh, yeah. He says, the one I've got downstairs is missing three pages. <laughs> So be careful when trying that particular trick. Anyway, but uh, like most things, we often um, miss the most... Im- they don't hear me? Oh. Can everyone hear? No? <clears throat> Can everyone hear now? Are you sure it's me? <laughs> Is this... How's this? How's this? Okay. <laughs> In any event, it's all right. You just missed the opening jokes. You didn't miss anything. Don't worry about it. Anyway. <laughs> so um, the uh, the problem is that with all of the preparation, as is so often the case, you can miss the most essential part. Right. The the best example is of course Pesach where people spend so much time shopping and cooking and serving and setting up and by the time you come to the Seder people are exhausted it's one of the nice things of living in Israel there's a lot of nice things but one of them is there's only one Seder in America you see people come into the first Seder and they're like dead and they say oh Baruch Hashem there's another one you know we have only one you gotta make that one count you haven't got two to choose from you know but it's so amazing you can have you can have people so caught up you know if people spent as much time Rosh Hashanah preparing for the Tekiah Shafer as they did preparing all of the simonim that they have at the Suda, 
I think it would be a lot more meaningful. Now, okay, I don't know how it works everywhere. You know, when I was growing up, we did the apple and honey. You know, that was really quite enough, you know. And now there's all kinds of things, you know, with more being discovered every day, you know. And it's hard to really keep that sense of awe when there's a fish head on your table, you know what I mean? And you're trying to focus on the little boy eating the eye. And, uh, you know, and you're supposed to remember this is the Yom Adin, the preparation, you know. People, people on Arab Yom Kippur eat like it's, you know, they'll never see food ever, ever again. You wouldn't know that it's only 25 hours. You think, never, you know. And they're eating, they're eating another drink, another this, you know. And make sure to take another little pill so I won't feel hungry. You know, kaltsom, tsom kal, zoom, tsom kali kali, you know what I mean? Whatever it is, you find something and, and you get so wrapped up and the most important aspects miss. So we have uh, Hanukkah coming up in about three weeks. And I want to try to give a focus to Hanukkah that will hopefully be a meaningful experience for us. And... Um, I'm looking for a sitter. I am in a shul. There you go. Oh, this one I might be able to see. Oh, Hashem. Beautiful. I went for eye therapy because my eyes don't work together. Now I can't see anything. I ended up like one eye was far-sighted and one was near-sighted. So that they work together. It was great. So I used one eye to look at the air. One eye now they work together. I don't see anything. Baruch Hashem. Um, we're, um, we're looking for where a person would find how the Chazal explain Hanukkah for us. So of course everyone knows the Gemara and uh, Shabbos, which discusses it. But they summed it up for us best, I think, for us to understand what it's all about in Al-Hanisim. Al-Hanisim, which we say when we daven and if we bench. I used to say when we bench, then I realized I'm of course living in the past. That's an old statement. When, you know, you know when you bench. It's, it's definitely an if you bench now. You know, my father over Shalom would never sit down to a suda without a piece of bread. You always have bread. If you didn't have bread, it's not a suda, you know. My friend Rabbi Pelik, who's the rabbi of Shari Tzedek, once you know, said when he was a young man, he, he was a bacha, he went to Rabbi Yoshef. I asked him, what bracha do you make, you know, on, uh, on, a, um, on a schnitzel? So he says, uh, I don't know, what's a schnitzel? So he went to the rabbis and he says, you never gave the rabbi schnitzel? He says, tell him it's what he had for lunch. So he says, yeah, I don't know, you, you always wash. We just pick up a schnitzel and eat it. <laughs> anyway, but this is a problem. This is one of the problems. I'm working on my doctoral thesis in psychology on the various psychological problems that afflict the Orthodox community. The number one being, of course, flashophobia, which is the fear of becoming flashings. <laughs> Orthodox Jews suffer from this. For some reason, German Jews suffer less. But um, you see that you know you're making making some soup. You know you want some soup. Um, no. Why? Because I'll be flashic. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll want a coffee. I, I don't know, I can't. I can't. <laughs> Sometimes you see people go like this. You want, you, want, you want to taste the soup? One second. One, two, three. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> that works for me, you know. <laughs> Flashophobia. It's obvious. It's a six-hour commitment, you know. 
then you wonder why there are so many Jewish singles today. You know what I mean? <laughs> Six hour commitment, make people break out in a sweat. <laughs> the second one is obviously, which we're referring to now, is benchophobia, the fear of having to bench, you know? And that's why when a person sits down at the table, you say, do you want to wash? No. No. Do you have rice cakes? Do you have crackers? Mazonis rolls? Mazonis bread? Mazonis anything? I will never bench again. <laughs> For most people, it takes them almost 90 seconds. I have a theory that benchophobia actually comes from the fact that we take little children and force them to sing that tune over and over again. Watch a teenager bench. You know what I mean? If you start singing the benching, forget it. They just pull out a rope and hang themselves. But just watch when they sit down to bench. They bench like this. Uh, can I go? And then they're so traumatized already from all of the singing of the benching, you know? The worst part is no there because it has no tune and you have to pretend it does. No. Anyway. So if you bench, <laughs> and when you daven, you will say Alanisim. And this is where the Chazal summed up for us the entire Purim story. So, <laughs> and the Hanukkah story, which is what we're going to refer to now. <clears throat> In the days of the Kohen Gadol, Chashmanayim, Yisrael, when the evil Greek Empire came, to get us to forget the Torah and not to keep the laws. And we won. Basically, what it's saying, right? It's good for you. It's good for us. Yeah? The Achakane. Here's the punchline. We came to the base of Mikdash. Ufina was hecholecha. We cleaned it up. And we purified it. We lit the candles. And we established these eight days of Hanukkah. To give praise and thanks to Hashem. Now in this little um, discussion, in this small paragraph, we've put in everything that you need to know. We hear about the Greeks came and what they tried to do to us. We hear about the Jews fighting back. We hear about, you know, um, the destruction, you know, the, the desecration of the basic English. How we cleaned it up. We hear about the war. We hear about how we lit the menorah and how the miracle take place. And everything would seem to be here. Right? Every, every aspect. The custom of eating foods fried in oil. Right? Um, which, you know, in this country it's usually latkes. I come from Israel, it's usually safkuniot, right? Safkuniot, which they jokingly call jelly donuts. Go to Dunkin' Donuts, you'll see a jelly donut. You know, then uh, here, um, Angel's Bakery collects all the old challah rolls, soaks them in oil for days, and adds a little powdered sugar. And if you stick a wick in it, you could recreate the Hanukkah miracle. Just... <laughs> That little sufganiyah will burn for at least eight days. It may keep going. You know what I mean? It might, you know. 
They put a little powdered sugar so you won't notice, you know. <laughs> but um, it was one year, just to show you, you know, they, they, they couldn't put powdered sugar on. They asked the powdered sugar. They were afraid of anthrax. So there was no powdered sugar on it. So all there was was this oil-soaked piece of bread. <laughs> but that's what the oil is there for, of course, we lit the menorah. And also because, as it says, Gibarim Yad Chaloshim. Right, we all know the Greeks had wonderful physiques and they were in such great health and we Jews want to show we don't care about that. <laughs> we're going to eat lots of oil and we're going to fall apart. You know, and that's why there are certain yeshivas where they're makbid to do this all year round, eat lots of foods cooked in oil to make sure that we never look like a Greek. So, um, so everything's in here. The one thing that is missing, in my opinion, is of course the dreidel. Where is the dreidel? And nowhere does it say, and they play dreidels. Which, of course, is probably the most important aspect of Hanukkah. Because you know, whenever you see anyone make a little Hanukkah sign, there is always the ubiquitous dreidel there. You know, nun, gimel, shin, hey, neis, gadol, sham. And we all know you play dreidel, you get a gimel, you win the whole pot, and hey, you get half a pot, nun, you get nothing, shin, you put in money. And uh, I guess while I'm on the subject, I'll, I'll deal with a slightly traumatic experience from my youth. I can't afford therapy. I work my problems out in public. Um, I, uh, I used to, when I was a young man in the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County, um, I used to look forward to Hanukkah because they would give us dreidels, and uh, then we didn't have to have class because we got to play it. And it was just, that was just as good as it gets for a kid in fourth grade, you know? You get something for free, you get to play, and you don't have to go to class, right? That's it. It had everything. Anyway, one year, the Rebbe gives a dreidel, and I raised my hand. I said, Rebbe, the, the dreidel is defective, you know? I said, what do you mean? He says, there's no shin. Uh, it's put in a pay. Says, oh, these are new and improved dreidels. These came from Israel. Instead of a shin, it has a pay, because neis gadol haya po. I said, that's cute. Give me back my real dreidel. I don't even know what this is. So he says, no, no, no. This, is, this, is, this makes a lot of sense. Because when you get a shin, what do you do? Pay. <laughs> These are the same people who tell you that you should eat turkey on Thanksgiving because turkey is hodu. And you give thanks and chicken and turkey. I mean, turkey and hodu. And things, it all fits together. Anyway, this is one of the many, many areas which seem like it makes sense and really doesn't. There's a lot of areas like this of little fun facts you can pick up that sound really impressive and make no sense. For example, if you turned the olive base into a gematria, it made A1 and B2 and stuff like that, right? So then the word for Hashem, right? G-O-D. So D equals 4. And G equals 7. And O equals 15. Together, G-O-D in that gematria would be 26, which is the same as Yudke Vavke means absolutely nothing. <laughs> but it's, it's fun, you know, if you had a party and there's nothing doing and you have to, like, you know, hey, do you ever wonder if you made a gematria out of English like, for no reason? Anyway, but um, uh, that's what he says, pay. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Jews have lived in Israel, you know, before. We never changed the dreidel, you know. There were many other reasons given for the dreidel. You look at the many soscha, you look at other sources, there's a lot of other reasons for it. This idea of changing it from a shin to a pay, instead of po, I don't know why they had to change my dreidel, and that's it. I just had to share that with you. I went to a farmer store here, and I found a bunch of dreidels with shins. I'm bringing them back to my children in Israel, who are deprived. They've never seen one. I have to show them an old-time dreidel. Anyway, let's get back to uh, the actual shear.
This is one of the fun things about having ADDs. You can talk about whatever you want, and to you it makes sense. In any event, so um, I once had a kid in my shir who had ADD. It was real great, the two of us trying to, you know. So he says to me, how many kids with ADD does it take to change a light bulb? Want to ride my bicycle? <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> anyway, or Hashem. No, we're not talking about that. Yeah, um, Where's the dreidel? Why is the dreidel missing from the story? So, let's put the dreidel into context. And we all know the context, right? I think we all know the context already. Um, that part of the story we're all more or less familiar with. The Greeks came to town. Let's get the historical overview. The Greeks come to town under the guise of Alexander the Great. He comes to Israel and he captures it. The Jews are under no illusion. This is the most powerful military force that the world has ever seen. There is no way you're going to defeat the Greeks. This is a bunch of yeshiva guys, you know what I mean? And uh, these, are not, these are not fighters, we weren't a powerful army. And so Shimon at Sadik, you know, puts on the begotten of the Kohen Gadol and he goes to surrender to Alexander the Great, Gemara and Yuma, everybody knows the story. And Alexander the Great dismounts from his horse and bows down to Shimon Hatzadik, who says, Psst, it's the other way. We're surrendering to you. And he says, before I would go to fight a battle, I always saw somebody like you dressed in those clothing who would come and tell me what I'm supposed to do in the battle. So I feel I owe you my victories. And Shimon Hatzadik says, in that case, you may rise. And he says, okay, we're going to capture your land, but we will give you independence, and we will give you, you know, uh, you know, cultural freedom and all that kind of stuff. He says, no problem. But the Greeks came, and unlike everybody else who came to conquer the world, the Greeks had a vision. They came to not just capture, they came to spread their culture, their wisdom, Hellenism, and bring it to the world. And so they come to Eretzel, and they build their gymnasiums, and they build their theaters, and they build their temples, and they, you know, set everything up, and bit by bit, the Jews are sucked in. Slowly. It's a slow process. You don't even realize it happening. Bit by bit. Until it becomes in to become Greek. And they're pulled into this lifestyle. And of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us an opportunity However you want to go, Kishbarach will help you. And so, comes along Antiochus and forces the issue. And now everyone has to become Greek. And he outlaws the study of Torah. And the majority of Jews were okay. But there was a minority, a small minority, of Jews who wanted to learn Torah, who remained loyal, and they escaped up into the mountains. And they hid. And they sat and learned. And when the Greeks would come, they would pull out their dreidels and pretend that they were making an illegal casino. And the Greeks were like, okay, you know, just, you know, don't keep things uh, from getting out of hand. And when they left, they put away the dreidels and they went back to learning. I've taught in certain yeshivas where it works a little different. See the kids playing whatever they're playing and when the rabbi comes, they pull out the svarim and when he leaves, they hide it and take back out the game, you know, and makes you wonder who won this war. But... Um, that's, the, that's where the dreidel fits in. For three years, the Jews hid out in the mountains. What were they supposed to do? There really wasn't much of an option. Nobody expected them to go to war against the Greek Empire, the most powerful military force that the world had ever seen. Sir Edward Creasy, in his classic work, The Fifteen Decisive Battles of World History, um, when he discusses 
Alexander fighting Darius the Great. He says that Alexander's entire army was not as big as Darius's right wing. It, it should have, by fewer, fewer numbers alone, Darius should have destroyed them. But Alexander's army was so powerful that they just were able to defeat this uh, powerful Persian force, changing the course of history. And uh, what do you expect these Jews to do? This small group of B'nai Torah hiding up in the mountains, learning. What do you want them to do? Will anyone have a taina on the partisans? Or not the partisans. The, 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 the people who hid in the woods to try to survive during the Holocaust. Do you have a taina on them? Why didn't you go out and uh, fight the Nazi tanks and, and with your sticks? They had no weapons. They, they were lucky to survive. You know, what could you possibly do under such circumstances? You wait. And a Kurdish Baruch Hu will make a Nes Nister. Uh, Antiochus will die. Another king will come up with a different policy. A bigger country will come along and capture them. But what are we supposed to do? There was no time. There was nothing we were supposed to do. How are you supposed to go to war against, against the Greek Empire? And for three years, they hid up in the mountains. They used their little dreidels as a decoy. And the base of Mikdash stood empty and cold and defiled. And after three years, they couldn't take it anymore. And they come and ask the following Shaila. They say, can we go out and fight the Greeks? So I understand. You think you're going to beat the Greeks? No. Can we go out and beat the Greeks knowing we will be killed? I do not expect victory. So what do you want to do this for? Because I want to show the world that there are still Jews who care enough for what they believe in to die for it. So you know you're not mechuyiv to die as Kiddush Hashem for this. I'm not asking if I'm mechuyiv. I'm asking if it's mutter. Are we allowed to go on this suicide mission in order to be able to show the world that we still care? Well, it seems that this shayla was asked earlier in Jewish history. Because Nebuchadnezzar built a giant statue. And he said three, from, three people from every nation is going to have to bow down. And from the Jewish people was selected Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they were told to bow down. And so they had the following option. They could run away and hide. And they asked the same Shaila that the Hashemunayim asked. But can we not run away? Can we stand there and not bow down? Knowing we'll be thrown into a Kishina Aish for this? Well, what can I tell you? Let's go and ask a Shaila. So they went to Yechesko and Navi who says that I have a tradition from my Rebbe Yirmiyahu who has a tradition from his Rebbe Yishayo. That when there's danger you run away and hide. But if you want to, you can be Moise Nefesh. Which is how the Rambam Paskins, by the way. And so they said, fine. And they stood up and they refused to bow and they were thrown into the kitchen of Aish and miraculously they survived. And the Chashmanayim said, we are under no such illusion. I imagine that we will throw ourselves against the Greek juggernaut and we will be destroyed. But at least we will show that there are still Jews who care. So, that was their plan. To go and die as Kiddush Hashem. They went into battle, fasting. Yehuda and Maccabee gave them a big Musa shmuz, And they find 
a Greek army and they attack them and they win. And they were very disappointed. <laughs> they said, You know, the Maccabee, what happened here? We were supposed to die as Kedush Hashem. He said, I, I don't know. This is, this is very disturbing. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know if you can imagine what that's like. You're all psyched up to die as Kedush Hashem and then you win. I tell a story in Israel about this brisker who got captured by this Arab terrorist. He says he's going to kill him. And he says, You mean I'm going to die as Kedush Hashem? Oh! Baruch I'll cut to the end. Yep. Al Kiddush Hashem. The guy says, What's wrong with you? What are you crazy? You're insane. I'm not going to kill you. No, no, no. No. So I have to get made a bracha. No. So they're all sitting there. You hold the magazine. No, no, no. He's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm very sorry. We're going to fight another battle tomorrow. I'll find a bigger army, and Amir Tashem will all die. Right? <laughs> so they go the next day, and they, you know, they get ready for battle, and then, you know, and then Moshe, the spear goes the other way. Okay, you know, get the spear, you know, and they're all ready, and they charge off at the battle, you know. They were weak, they were a bunch of Shiva guys, you know what I mean? They were, you know, they're going off to battle, another Greek army, boom, they win again. Said, you're the Maccabee, what's going on here? You're the worst general we've ever had. (laughs) Twice? He says, look, I don't know, these must be small armies. <laughs> I'm going to find a major garrison. Tomorrow, I give you the best that I can do. We'll all die, all right? I'm going to really give it a real try this time, all right? They go out a third time. They fight an even bigger army, and they win. See who the Maccabee says, listen, guys, come around. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to break this to you, but I think we're going to win. So what are we going to win? You can't win. Nobody can beat the Greeks. No. No? Zogbir, what's going on over here? Does this make any sense to you? He spoke Yiddish, of course, as all great Jewish <laughs> throughout history. You know? Uh, you know those little books for kids and like Moshe's wearing a strimal. I love that one. Anyway, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Can you explain this? I don't know what's happening. I guess the Kurdish Baruch is going to give us a victory. Unbelievable. And they fight another army, and they fight another army, and they defeat army after army. They finally make their way to Yerushalayim. And they come to the base of Mikdash. You can imagine the scene of devastation. Pigs have been offered up on the Mizbeach. Everything is defiled. Hold that thought. Let's go to the famous Gemara in Shabbos. What is the Mitzvah Chanukah? Mitzvah Chanukah is Ner Ish Ubeisai. Every house, every night lights one candle. Mehadrin? Everyone in the house lights one candle every night. Mahadrin minimahadrin? Ah, oh, that's Machlech, it's Bezol and Beishamai. Beishamai says first day eight, then seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Bezol says one, then two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Mahadrin, Mahadrin minimahadrin? Where do you find this? We know there's a concept of L'Chathchila and B'Dieved. We know there's a concept of Hidur Mitzvah. Here you have, here's the Mitzvah. Here's Mahadrin. Here's Mahadrin Minahadrin. Seers, good, better, and best. You know what I mean? This is kosher. This is more kosher. This is super duper kosher. Today you find this on restaurants. Mahadrin Minahadrin. You know what I mean? But, uh, but, but where do you find this in halacha? 
There's a mitzvah, there's mahadrin, mahadrin, minimum mahadrin. All right, back to our story. They come to the base of Mikdash and the place is devastated. And he says, okay, we're going to start lighting the menorah. We're going to put things together. We're going to clean up. Let's light the menorah. But first, find me Taha oil. He says, that's ridiculous. There is no Taha oil. Find me Taha oil. He says, no, no, no. Didn't you hear the song? Upar to Chomos, Chomos Megdolai, Vitimu Koshmanim. This was the Greeks' plan. Break holes in their walls and matame all their oil. Spartacus, Eradicus, Hepatitis, let's go. Everybody, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Look, there's some oil over there. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. We got all the oil. No, there's one over there. Tell me, tell me. That's it. For some reason, this was very important to them, the matame all the oil, but there is no dirt. Find me Taha oil. Yehuda Maccabee, you know there's a din. Tumah Hutchvarab. You know, if everybody's tummy, you're allowed to do it in Tumah. Find me Taha oil. All right. Guy's unreasonable. Fine. So they all go out and they search. They search and of course there's no Taha oil. Everything is tummy. And the person finds one little thing with the seal of the coin Gadol. He brings it back. He says, you guys aren't going to believe this. Look what I found. With the seal of the coin Gadol. They said, that's ridiculous. The coin Gadol never seals oil. So why he sealed this one? Wow, this is unbelievable. But Yehuda Maccabee, it's going to take us eight days to get more oil. Either because we're going to have to go up to Gush Chalav and to Osher and get it, or, or because uh, they're going to have to wait seven days till they're Tahar and then a day to make the oil, whatever it is, it's going to take eight days. So don't, don't not blow this. Right? Put in a little bit of oil and we'll be Yotze with that. And he says, put in all the oil. It's going to burn for the Hosman. Says the base of Levi. Okay, so Yehuda Maccabee. So make thinner wicks. If you make thinner wicks, you can put in less oil and it'll burn for the whole time. Put in all the oil, put in the regular wicks, and it's going to burn the whole time. But Yehuda Maccabee, what's going to be tomorrow? Oh, now you're Mr. Practical. You come to me with a tiny, how come we didn't get killed in the battle? You guys should have been dead ten times over. And Akush Baruch Hu miraculously gave you a victory over and over and over again. And now when it comes to the Avodah, the base of Migdash, now you want to cut corners? Now you want to be Mr. Practical? You'll put in the oil and you'll put in the wicks and I don't know what's going to come tomorrow. The whole Nes Hanukkah didn't have to happen for any reason except for the fact that Yehuda Maccabee was a religious fanatic. He was totally unreasonable. He refused to do things that made sense. There was nothing to do. He had two wonderful solutions. Put in less oil, make thin wick. Nothing. He insisted. He forced the Kodesh Baruch Hu's hands to make this miracle. It doesn't seem to make much sense. But that's the point. It says Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Sher, the, the Shiva Slobotka. He says... If we were practical, we would still be up in the mountains playing with the dreidel. If we were reasonable, we'd be hiding up in the mountains. Hanukkah was an unreasonable holiday. It should never have taken place. If we stayed up in the mountains and waited for a Kodesh Baruch Hu to, 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 to somehow make some kind of political maneuver and save us, there would have been no taina on us. But there never would have been a holiday called Hanukkah. Hanukkah came around because they fought a war they didn't have to fight. They were Moise Nefesh when they didn't have to be Moise Nefesh. They gave up their lives in a situation where they didn't have to. And God gave them a victory for only one reason. He gave them a victory because they went 
beyond what was expected of them. They were Moisa Nefesh and they received this tremendous reward. So when they came to lighting the menorah, they insisted on doing it not kosher, mahadrin mena mahadrin. Could you imagine you walk into a, a from person's house on the fourth night of Hanukkah and there's one candle burning? I said, well, what's this? What's this? What do you mean? You ever say the Gemara? It's design. Ah, it's kosher. Yeah, you should pay so. I lit a candle. What do you want from me? Oh, I gotta be mahadrin mena mahadrin with all you crazy homers. This is enough. Did you ever see anyone do that? The only way to celebrate Hanukkah is Mahadrin and Mahadrin. The people who put the electric menorahs in their window light at Mahadrin and Mahadrin. They light another light bulb every day. You know what I mean? But even they don't just put in one light bulb. They do it Mahadrin and Mahadrin, above and beyond. Because Hanukkah is a time when we're forced to confront the following question, and it's a scary question. How with the Eved a life do you want to live? You know, you have people all the time, all the time, say things to me like, Rabbi, it's not the worst thing in the world, right? It's okay, right? It's kosher, right? It's good enough. But it's not terrible, right? No, it's true. It's true. By the way, I know you're looking to get married. I have a wonderful person for you. Tell me about them. They're okay. <laughs> They're not so bad. Nothing special. Good enough for you. <laughs> and the two of you will get married, and you'll have an okay marriage, and a bunch of not-such-terrible kids. And at the end of your life, on your tombstone, it will read, He was okay. Well, no, of course not, because we all want to live exceptional lives, at least in our mind. Right? At the end of our lives, we would like everybody to remember us as being unbelievable and great, and you know. Nobody wants uh, anyone to. I was once at a house of Shiva, and they were telling the truth. It's so sad to listen. <laughs> Harry, he loved a cigar. That was, I tell you, it was probably the most important thing in his life, except a good scotch. If he had a scotch and a cigar, I never saw the guy that happy. That was Harry. You think of Harry, you think of a glass of scotch and a cigar. On his tombstone, there's a big cigar and a bottle of scotch. Here lies Harry. You know, nobody wants to remember that way. We live the lives that we don't want to be remembered by. Nobody wants to be remembered for the life that they live. A mafia hitman. You know, doesn't expect anyone to get up at his funeral and say, you know, Vinny. <laughs> Vinny was a great killer. And he killed lots of people and always in creative ways. Oh, I remember one time he had this guy by the throat, you know. <laughs> they don't say that. Even for a mafia hitman, they say, Vinny was a good friend. Vinny was loyal. Vinny was good to his mother. <laughs> they find something good to say because ultimately that's what we want. We all want to be remembered as having lived exceptional lives. We just don't want to actually live them. Which is not really fair. It's not really true. Because there are people who will not cut corners in any area of their life, almost. You know? Guys who come to my house, 
You know, <laughs> when I get married, my father says, listen, in case you have a kiddish or something like that, buy a bottle of shivas, buy a bottle of Crown Royal, and it'll last you the rest of your life. Very nice. Then guys started coming to my house for Shabbos, for Shiva guys. They said, you don't have any single malts? I said, what's that? <laughs> you know, uh, Glenn Fittich, Glenn Livett, Glenn Miller, you know, uh, John Glenn, <laughs> you know. You know, because this is the art, an art to the different scotches. You have to get just the right scotch, you know. Some people like it from uh, the island of, uh, of uh, uh, Islay. Islay. I always pronounce it Islay. I was just with my friend, Ruby Y.Y. Rubenstein, who's Scottish. He almost had a heart attack when I said Islay. Islay. Yeah. Ilo. Ilo? I don't know. It says, remember, I love Lucy. So I think, I love, I love, you know. It says, I said, what's so special about those scotches? They have a, a peaty, smoky taste. I said, you mean they taste like burnt dirt? You know what I mean? That's supposed to be a value, you know? But people go, oh. So then I, so I finally managed to pick up from enough trips to duty for enough scotches that I was able to keep it. So now, of course, the bourbon crowd comes in. Oh, you don't have a bourbon? Oh, I'm looking for this bourbon. There's one, a guy's telling me, this is, he's coming to America special for this. He lives in Israel. There's this one distillery that only makes a batch and only sends it to certain stores, and he's like flying down to Kentucky. So to pick up this one particular bourbon. And it's like, oh, there's a fine bourbon. Oh, there's a fine scotch. You think I drink any, you know, you bring out a shiver. Oh, I drink shiver. I never drink a shiver. You know? Fine scotch. Fine scotch, you know. Fine bourbons, you know. Drew goes out to a restaurant. There's a uh, rabbi who was also, who was a comedian. I don't want to mention his name in the shul, but, you know, he says, uh, Says so Anandu goes out to a restaurant. He orders medium. He doesn't care what the steak looks like. You know, he doesn't know the difference. You know, a Jew says, "Well, not exactly medium. A little bit more towards medium. Well, not exactly medium. Well, I'll come in the kitchen. I'll show you. You know what I mean?" <laughs> People send it back. This is no good. They send back the steak. I don't want the steak. You know. I was once in a store in Brooklyn, a hat store. I went in to buy a hat. I bought two hats, two suits, and a tie. And this yeshiva bacha still had the same hat, trying to get it just perfect. And he had them change the ribbon, and shave a little bit off, and put it this way, and put it that way. And he's calling in his friends, you know, people should all come and look at his hat. What do you think of my hat? Is my hat this hat that way? You know, um, which is nothing compared to my daughters, right? (laughs) Most of whom are girls. And um, girls have a completely different perception of what reality is, you know. So when we make a simcha, it's a simcha, you know, for everyone except for me. Because my daughters have to find clothes for this simcha. And they're scouring continents to be able to find just the right outfit. You know, and they'll try on this, and they'll try on that, and and it's getting closer and closer, you know what I mean? Until they find just the perfect outfit, and then it has to be tailored, so it fits them just so. One of my daughters almost missed her sister's chuppah, because she had to take in the dress another, she could still breathe, had to be taken in another, until it was perfect. And how's my hair? Perfect. You know? You ever see people who are remodeling? Tell me that's not the most frightening thing in the world. You know, you see this woman open up a purse and she pulls out like a piece of wallpaper, you know? 
and then she pulls out like um, beige, you know, she wants to paint beige, but you know, you walk into the paint store, there's 8,000 shades of beige, and she pulls out all these little cards with the wallpaper and a little piece of carpet and a tile, and she sets them all up and invites people over to, you know, offer suggestions and what do you think? Does this go, you know? And they finally set it up and then they paint, but didn't come out just right. So we have to paint again and then we have to move this here and we have to work and just get this room just right. And when they're done, they say, How's the living room? Perfect. How's your hat? Perfect. How was that steak? Perfect. How's the outfit? Perfect. How's your life? Okay. <laughs> How's your marriage? Could be better. How's your relationship with your kids? Not so bad. But my hat is perfect. And my living room is perfect. When it comes to certain areas in our life, we demand perfection. You see somebody walking into the same pizza place. They host lunch there three times a week. They haven't changed the menu since 1862. It's the same exact menu covered with grease. And they walk into the, and the, the pizza store like this. Do I want a calzone? I don't know. Should I have a salad? I don't know. What should I do? And people are like, excuse me, you know, we're trying to... Hey, this is lunch. This is not just anything. I can't rush this. What if I end up with the wrong lunch? I have to have the perfect lunch. In certain areas of our life, we insist on absolute perfection. Mahadrin, minimahadrin. Every area of our life, we want mahadrin, minimahadrin. Only the juiciest, best tomatoes get to be in our tomato sauce. Why? It's just tomato sauce. Do you ever make tomato sauce? You take whatever tomatoes, mushy tomatoes, are left in the bin. No. We want the best, finest, greatest, reddest, juiciest, ripest tomatoes that have ever existed in the history of the world. Because you don't want just any tomato, you want the best. And how come we're content with our life to live it okay? That's how we always said it. You know where Shum is? I'll give you a hint. Shum is not Po. Shum is over there. It's someplace else. You notice that the word Shum pops up a lot in Hanukkah? Shmona, Chashmonayim, Shemen. Yeah? A lot of those Shum words. So the word Shum can also be read as shame, right? Everyone knows this. It's at the back of the Yorchkul Siddur. You know, uh, the Shlaw says that you have to say a Pusik with your letters of your name in it, because otherwise you'll get up to Shemayim and you'll forget your name. Wow, that's got to be embarrassing. <coughs> Next, what's your name? Oh, wait a second. I used to know this. Hold on a second. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. I don't know. I don't have anything on me, you know. And for the rest of eternity, you sit on the bench going, Phil? Bob? No. No. Harry? I don't think so. Your name you'll remember, but will you know your shame, Shum? How many people know that their name is a Pusik in Tanakh? That means it's not just a name. That means that you have something to do that is essential to the entire creation. Why in the world would a person be content to live an okay life when the Kurdish Baruch put me in the Torah? Because we live Po and we don't live Shum. 
The first Jew is introduced to the world, not when he throws himself into a Kibshanaish, and not when he discovers the Kurdish Baruch Hu, and not when he stands up at the Migdal Bavel, and not when he has a yeshiva with tens of thousands of Talmidim. He's introduced with the following words, Leich Lecha, you're going Shum, not Po. You are on a journey, you're going somewhere. Shamayim. Up to Shomayim. It's up there, it's not down here. Shemen. When you mix it together with water, it floats to the top. It's there, it's Shom. The Maharal says, right? This world is six. The point in the middle that brings it all together is seven. Anything that's outside of this world is Shmona. It's over there. It's someplace else. Hanukkah took place because people were not content to live Po. They wanted to live Shom. That's the goal of life. The goal of life is not to be Poe. It means I don't want to live an average life. I want to live an exceptional life. And deep down everybody does. Nobody wants to be, you know, just an average person. People want to be great people. People want to do great things. People want to go on and accomplish something in this world. Because they were going somewhere. Because they were going to accomplish something. You want to play with the dreidel? You want to hide out in the mountains? That's Poe. That's Poe. Hanukkah says, I don't want to be Poe. I want to be Shum. I'm going someplace else. I want to accomplish something with my life. I want to live an exceptional life. And it's really scary. Scary thing. Because how many people really get to do it? Let me speak just for a moment about Gehenim because it is a warm topic. <laughs> People were very concerned about Gehenim. They were afraid that, you know, I'm going to be burnt, you know, and fire and pitchforks and, you know, whips of fire and that kind of stuff. Don't worry about it. If you're really worried about that, just arrange cyrogenics. They'll keep you frozen. Nothing to worry about, you know. You know, if you want to go for a burial, have somebody come by and check every now and then, make sure there's no flames coming out. There'll be no fire. You're a soul. A nishama, right? There's no, there's, no, there's no fire there. Why do we use that muscle? Because when you burn something, you release the gases, you vaporize the liquids, and you're left with nothing but the essence. When you get to Shamayim, when you get up into the next world, you want to be in a position where you are who you are supposed to be. But how many people know who they really are? We pick up a lot of stuff along the way. Do you really know who we are? Well, I'm somebody's brother and I'm somebody's sister and I'm somebody's mother and father and the son and daughter and you know no, but who are you? I work here, I work there, I have this profession, I have that no no, but who are you? I live here, I have this kind of house, I drive this, I don't care. Who are you? I'm dating myself now, I'm really sorry. I can't help it. You know, I moved to Israel in the uh, 1980s, and I'm frozen in time. And I've reached that age now, you know, where I'm like my rebellion, where you think that you say things and you're happening, when in fact it's clear that you happened a long time ago. And, um, you know, I remember this Dr. Pepper commercial. I drink Dr. Pepper and I'm proud. I'm part of an original crowd, so if you want to... You know, there's a Dr. Pepper craze. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, you're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper. <laughs> you understand? 
People have a little, they had little pins. I'm a pepper. My identity is totally based on the soft drink that I drink. I'm a peppy. Pepper. How about you? I'm a Coke. Hi, Coke. I'm a pepper. You know? Who's that guy over there? I'm a Mountain Dew. That's right. Sure I That's how we identify ourselves. You know? I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm an accountant. You know? You know? I'm in the service industry. I'm a consultant. You know? Uh, we define ourselves by our professions. But who are you really? In your essence. And you strip away everything. If there was nothing but just you. So, so what do we do? What is it? You know, so fire is really not the big deal. The big deal is they take out your life. And you get to watch your life. Your whole life. And you're there. And your parents. Your grandparents. Your great-grandparents. I haven't been You know what I mean? Everybody's watching this life. And I can't tell you that at times. It must be somewhat disappointing. For everybody sitting there. If not downright boring. You know what I mean? And you're like, okay, alright. Um, does this pick up a little bit? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and you're just watching this. And then they pull out another DVD. This is the scary part. It's what your life could have been. And then you watch and see the greatness of what you could have done. I met a... I gave... The first Shabbaton I ever ran was in Big Bear, California in 19... 19- 78 and I was doing a beginner's minion there and like most Shabbatonim it was based on a lie that's how we make Shabbatons nobody's ever going to advertise a Shabbaton what it really is you sing you dance you pray you eat you pray you study Torah you pray you eat you pray 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 you eat you dance you pray you know it goes on like that's not very exciting so they always advertise it, you know. We're going ice skating. <laughs> There'll be a band. <laughs> you know, Marvin and his amazing quarter box, you know what I mean? And, um, you know what I mean? Great time to socialize, you know. <laughs> when, But, uh, you know, but, but you, you don't, can't really advertise. So we advertised this as a, as, well, it was supposed to be a ski weekend. Then we realized skiing was too expensive. So we said tobogganing. Then we realized tobogganing was too expensive. So we said tubing. Well, I think we advertised it as a ski weekend, so, you know, but basically we're going to put people in big tires and roll them down the hill. But uh, that was only going to be Sunday morning. <laughs> they had to get through the Shabbos. So these two guys came who just weren't getting it. You know, they were like dressed in army fatigues and stuff. Like they just, they weren't sure what it was about. We played Capture the Flag that, 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 uh, Motsi Shabbos and they were in like, you know, camouflage. You know, it was like, they took this seriously. They were going to kill somebody anyway, you know. So, um, um, I had a beginner's minion that job this morning. And they came to it. And at some point, I remember, in the context of it, I mentioned something about how a person is created from the dust of the earth, and the Baruch Hu breathes in a spirit of life, and that's what a person is, basically. You're half God and half dirt, and a person has to decide where they're going to go. All right. These guys did not strike me as great intellectuals. And All right. Six months later, I was in one of the local yeshivas, and this guy comes up to me and says, Oh, Rabbi Olofsky, how are you? I said, who are you? He said, you don't remember me? He said, no. Said, my name is so-and-so. I said, I don't remember you. He said, I came to that ski weekend of yours. I said, really? He said, who are you? Oh, the guy with the army fatigue. I said, that was you? Now he's like, just like a yeshiva guy. <laughs> he said, what are you doing here? He says, I thought about what you said. At that beginner's menu. I came home after that weekend. I looked myself in the mirror and I said, I could be God or I could be dirt. I'm not dirt. Am I dirt? I'm not dirt. He turns to me. I'm not dirt. No, you're not. <laughs> you're cool, man. 
He said, if there's God inside of me, I'm going to find it. That's what he said to me. It was amazing. When I was sitting Shiva for my father, I'm one of six boys of whom I'm the quietest. So uh, you can imagine what this must have looked like. So my four brothers, you know, four of my brothers were upstairs, and I volunteered to go down to the basement because I had people coming from different places. And I had another brother who lived in New Jersey. He says, I'll also sit downstairs with you because I don't know all the local people. And so we were working the basement. If you've ever sat shiver, you know that you tell a lot of the same stories and, you, you know, you're listening to the other side of the room, what's going on, etc. Anyway, there was a lonely action. My brother said to me, you know, Dad ran a flower shop for 50 years. That was like most of his life that he spent in the flower shop. And no one came to talk about that. They came to talk about this act of charity that he did or this good thing that he did, etc. And he says, you know, most of your life is not remembered after you're gone. They're just moments in your life. And I said, and the difference between a tzaddik and a regular person is that by a tzaddik, most of their life is made up by those little moments. You know? I heard once somebody say, you know, a gadol is not someone who does big things, but whatever he does is big. You know? I had the discourse of having of Chrysler Tzatzal in my building, and whenever he talked to you, you thought you were the most important person in the world. The most important person in the world. I went to see Rebel Yoshev on a few occasions. He had, had all the time in the world. Whatever you want. Go ahead and ask. You know? And trust me, he had many more important things to deal with than me. Now, Godel is somebody who whatever they do, they do it big. It's meaningful to them. They look, they, 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 they the David Briska was once giving Musa to his boys in the yeshiva. And then he says, ah, what do I want from you guys? What have you ever seen? I went so Baruch Bear come out of the bathroom and make an Asher Yotzar. It changed my life. I saw that bracha and it just changed my life. You know, it, it means that everything that we do can be made up of moments of greatness. If we want. Or we can live lives that are okay and not so bad. It can be better. When comes Hanukkah, we light a menorah. And most people add a little water and the oil floats above. And the wick flows above and the flame is floating above it. It's, it's hard to see even. The flame is is just above it. Ner nishama sham. It's not quite here. It's there. And wherever you see that flame, you see that flame flickering or burning strongly. And you see it pointing upwards, and you know that that's me. I have the potential to do great things in this world. Now, the truth of the matter is that. You know, a lot of people hear this, and I go always used to hear this, and I hear all these inspirational stories, and it never really related to me. So one time this woman comes over to me, and she says, you know, Rabbi Alaska, I hear what you're saying, and I want to change the world. I said, listen, you've got three little kids, you know, you've got a husband, you've got to take care of your home, you've got plenty to keep you busy, it's fine. No, I want to go out and I want to change the world. She says, listen, you know, the Jewish people are as strong as each individual home. You know, it's okay, take care of your home. No, I want to change the world. Okay. All right, what's your degree in? I, I don't have a degree in. I never got a higher education. Okay. What special talents and abilities do you have? I don't have any special talents and abilities. Um, okay. Is there anything that you do that's exceptional? I bake. Okay. So let's talk tomorrow 
and figure out how we're going to bake the world into a better place. I didn't know really what to do with this, you know. She calls me the next day, she says, I figured it out. I said, Baruch Hashem. It's one of the things they teach us in rabbi school. If you wait long enough, people solve their own problems. <laughs> she says, there's a school for special children in my neighborhood, and I'm going to bake them on Rosh Chodesh cupcakes. 50 kids, 50 cupcakes, and I make great cupcakes. You know, with the filling and the frosting and the whole nine yards, and I'm going to make them cupcakes. Fine. She calls me up the day after Rosh Chodesh, she's flying. She says, the Manaihol of the school called me up and said, you don't know what you did. These are kids who don't see very well, they don't hear very well, they don't move very well. The one thing that works well for everybody is their sense of taste. And you made those kids very happy. Hard one. A few months later, I'm talking with her. I said, how's it going? She says, good, I'm setting up a website. I said, okay, I'm not that technically savvy, but, you know, you bake cupcakes, why do you need a website? You know, you can't email them, you know what I mean? Uh, what's this about? So she says, well, after a couple of months, I started to get calls from the schools all around Yerushalayim. And they said, do you think you could bake a special treat for our children too? They would also like a special treat. So I said, listen, I can't bake a thousand cupcakes, you know what I mean? But I've got friends. And she started speaking to her neighbors, and this one said I would do it twice a year, and this one said I would do it every other month, this one said I would do it once every three months, and I'm setting up a website to coordinate the schools with the women. And if anything falls short, you know, then I'll, I'll make sure that it gets covered. <coughs> I hung up the phone, and I have to tell you, I was so moved, I was so humbled. Because you hear these stories about people who, you know, go out and they start these organizations, and they build these things, and they do these great things, and I know I could never do anything like that. But I could bake cupcakes, if I had to, you know, or something like that. This is an ordinary person with no superpowers, no special abilities, just a person who cares. And this person turns around and did something that changed the world, took hundreds and hundreds of children whose lives were very cold and very dark, and made them a little sweeter and a little brighter only because she was not content to live Po. She wanted to live Shum. She didn't want to live a life that was Kosha, that was Yotze. She wanted to live a life that was Mahadrin and Mahadrin. She wanted to live an exceptional life. That's the difference. When Hanukkah comes around and we light those candles, we're going to look at those flames and we're going to say, I don't know which part is me. I don't know what's real in this world, but I want to live an exceptional life. And when I turn around, I'll be able to say at the end of my life, I lived the best life that I could have lived. And the Mitzvah Hashem, with that power, will be able to go into Hanukkah, and all of us will be able to go on to live that exceptional life. Thank you very much.